here this morning, I'm going to uh, share with you in our remaining 15 minutes together, uh, knowing that we were going to be sharing a report and wanted to have the freedom to do that. I'm going to preach a message this morning, but I'm actually going to break it up into a kind of a, a mini-series of two weeks, all right? So today and next Sunday, we'll, we'll teach on uh, this important subject. So let's just pray. Let's uh, use this moment of prayer to thank God uh, for the uh, experiences here of, of our ministry uh, overseas and pray uh, for God's blessing on the ministry of the Word today. Jim Proko, would you please pray for us this morning? Amen. I want to share with you this morning about the paradoxes of the Christian life. Subject a lot of people haven't given a lot of thought to necessarily, but one that if you uh, are reading the Bible regularly, at some point you'll likely stumble across. What, first of all, what is a paradox? A paradox is a truth that seems to be contradictory or irreconcilable. Or it is the idea, it's two ideas that seem to oppose each other. I like to think of them as two concepts, thoughts, or ideas that are held in a tension. They are both true. They are not contradictory, but they are held in a unique tension with one another. Doesn't take long in studying life or the Bible to realize that there are a lot of paradoxes in life. You run into them all the time. For example, even the way, and some of you who are involved in, uh, in uh, health-related and fields, depending upon uh, anatomy, can get me all straight later, but I know enough to know that even the way God has built your bodies involves paradox. For example, the way muscles work in combination. So your bicep, and your tricep are muscles that are in tension with one another. And when one is tight, the other is loose, relaxed. And when the other is tight, the other muscle is relaxed. Isn't that interesting that even God would create the human body with paradoxes? Paradoxes mark much about life and in Scripture. But before we get to the spiritual things, let me just mention a few a pastor friend of mine wrote me uh, years ago, and, and Roland and I say this little note. He said, Bobby said, truth that seems to be contradictory is often the most crucial and yet the most difficult to understand and grasp. So I'm always watching and looking for these paradoxes. A few maybe in modern life and the natural arena. For example, have you ever noticed that people spend more but have less? That's a paradox. We have bigger houses, but smaller families. We have more conveniences, but less time. I'm still working on that one. If you think that all the gadgets are going to save you time, I've got talk to me later, all right? More conveniences, but less time. We have more college degrees, but less common sense. Just speaking personally, all right? We have more knowledge, but less judgment. We have added years to life, but not life to years. 
Those are just some natural paradoxes. But there are some found directly in the Word of God. So let me just point out two that kind of give you broad uh, illustrations of paradoxes that are in the scriptural, just right there in your face. And then I'm going to share with you uh, three paradoxes uh, today, and then next week I'll share with you three or four more. All right? This is a wonderful scripture. I've always loved this verse. It's always been one of those that, that makes me feel the tension of the paradox. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. Doesn't that automatically, you go, say what? God is what? Both good and severe. How many of you all agree that the Bible is all truth? Right? It's all truth. What are we going to do with this? It is simply a paradox. These are two statements that appear to be irreconcilable. They appear to be contradictory, but they're both true. God is a good God, but God is also a God who is a judge. He is full of love, but he's full of fairness, and he will execute judgment, and he has demonstrated wrath in the past, and the Bible tells us it will happen in the future. God is good. But he's also severe. How many of you know it's easy to get imbalanced when it comes to paradoxes? You know what I'm saying? The issue in a paradox is how do we walk it in proper tension with one another? That's really the challenge. So this is one. There's another one found in the book of Acts, uh, maybe a little, a little uh, maybe more obvious or maybe less for you. In Acts 9.31, I think I used this verse uh, recently to point something out. The Bible describes the early church and it says, So the church throughout all of Judea and Samaria had peace and was built up walking in, watch the two things it was walking in, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. Focus on the two things it says that the church grew and what it was walking in. It was walking in what? The fear of the Lord. We just got through teaching on the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord, that sense of God's kind of that severity of God. The, the, the fact that God is holy, reverential all. That's the fear of the Lord. So it says the early church was growing. Why? Because they walked in the fear of the Lord. But look at the other balance point. And in the what? In the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how many of y'all would just rather talk about the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Oh, isn't that wonderful? And we could go there all day long, couldn't we? 24-7. But they're both true. And I suggest to you that the early church grew because it was able to live in the tension of both. Understanding the fear of the Lord, but also the importance of the comfort, the ministry of God. The Holy Spirit, both are true and both are crucial. Here's the point I'm making this morning. A paradox is not contradictory. These paradoxical truths are not contradictory. The key is what? To find the balance between both biblical truths. You have to find how they work together and find the balance. And so on that note, I want to share with you uh, a couple of them today. I've just picked three today. These would be pretty, pretty straightforward and probably pretty common for all of you to know. 
But let me just share a few with you today. Number one, we must serve to be great. Have you ever thought about that? I know most of us who, who've known the Lord for any time, we've studied the Bible, we know that servanthood is the, is the way to true blessings, it's the way actually to greatness, and we understand the importance of having a servant attitude, but sometimes we frankly forget how paradoxical this is. Jesus made it pretty clear when he gathered his disciples together in Matthew chapter 20, gathers together and they were having an argument, a couple of his disciples, about who was going to be better than the other one, who was going to be more important, who was going to be greater than the other one. And how did Jesus settle the argument? He said, time out, guys, time out. Here it is. Whoever wants to become great, whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to rule, whoever wants to have authority, whoever wants to ascend and influence, must what? Must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In that text, if you go and expand it in the context, Jesus absolutely condemned secular-styled leadership. With secular-style leadership and achievement is all about power. It's all about me. It's all about how I can manipulate and push and make things happen. And Jesus said, we don't do it like the Gentiles do it. And then he gave the alternative. We serve. Remember, these are, these are those he's getting ready to leave the kingdom to lead. They're going to be leaders. And he said, we don't do it like Gentiles leaders do. We lead as servant leaders we serve you really want to be great are you really interested in promotion then be the best servant you can possibly be that is the key to being great i think in our nation unfortunately we're we've influenced generations about being number one and with such as this competitive edge i understand all that but i think it's so easy to get fleshly and carnal and those thought processes. And do you know what I've learned? That if we follow this example of Jesus, if you just become a servant, serve as many people as you can. One of the new journey groups that we're launching this fall is all about love serving. And real love, if you really are letting the love of God control you, what will you do? You'll serve people. Not just serve people in action, but in attitude. Have you been around people who actually are serving you as a part of their job, but you can tell they don't have the attitude that to match? There's nothing more offensive to me than that. Jesus gives us the example in John chapter 11, doesn't he? When he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's getting ready to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice for our sins. And what does he do? Wouldn't they should have had a hired servant at the door? Jesus instead takes what? Takes a towel, takes a basin of water. And he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. He did it because he was demonstrating to them what it really means to serve. What it really means to be a servant. Today, we put our emphasis on titles, not towels. Jesus said, if you really want to be great, find a towel. Find a way to serve. Serve brother and sister in Christ. Serve the church. Serve the community. Serve your neighbors on your job. I don't care whether you're president, CEO, COO, or whether you're the janitor. Just serve. And God will make you influential as the servant. 
This is paradoxical. Wait a minute. I, I just want to be great. You're telling me I need to serve? This is the key to achieving greatness. Um, in keeping with our emphasis this morning on Ghana, one of my friends, in fact, I got to revisit with him. It's probably seven years since I've seen him last. His name is Frank Osei. And Frank was the one of my, on my very first trip uh, to Ghana, he was my driver. He drove me all the way from the airport in Accra, six hours on a terrible, dangerous highway, all the way to the city of Kumasi where we were meeting. And on that, uh, it was an evangelistic crusade that we were involved with. And so I got to know Frank. So I began to ask him questions like, you know, what do you, want, what do you feel called to do? What's your life? And he said, well, he said, I said, what do you do for a career right now? He said, well, I'm driving you today because I'm a taxi cab driver. I went, oh, well, great. Nice to be in good hands. He said, but I really feel I have another call. I feel like God's calling me to serve in, 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 in more traditional ministry and in, in travel and preach and teach. I said, well, great. He said, there's a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, as you know, in our nation, he said, we have English is the national language. He said, but we have our own you know, dialect, Tweet. I said, yes, I know. And he said, I can't read English. He said, I've never, he said, I dropped out of school when I was real, real young. And he said, I had to go to work. He said, I can't read. He said, I really don't speak very well. I said, no, you do good, Frank. He said, well, I really don't speak very well. So we got to know each other that whole week that I was there. And by the time I left, he said, would you just do one thing for me? He said, while you're away, would you pray for me? He said, I said, what's your prayer request? He said, I want the Lord to help me learn English. I said, brother, I said, you be diligent. You just trust God. He'll do it. Little did I know the approach he was going to take. I thought he'd go take an English class. Instead, every day he would fast and pray regularly. Every day in his prayer time, he would take a Bible, an English Bible. He would open it up in front of himself as he was praying. He'd open it up and he'd just pray, 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 pray. And let me tell you, Ghanaians know how to pray as Jezero discovered. And he would just pray, pray, pray. This went on for years. By that time, I had made several trips, and he really made no other issue of it. And finally, on one trip, when I arrived, he said he was very delighted to give me a testimony. So you will never guess what happened. I said, what? He said, about three months ago, I woke up in the morning, just like I've been doing for the last X number of years. He said, I have in front of me an English Bible, even though I can't read them word in it he said i'd have my bible open up right in front of me he said all of a sudden i was just praising god and praying he said and i started i looked down and said when i looked down at the bible all of a sudden the words changed just like that and i could understand god gave him the gift of language to be able to read english now you can look at me that way if you want to but i'm telling you <laughs> today he's pastoring uh, a, a successful church there in Kumasi uh, has now even a church in New Jersey and travels across the world uh, as an evangelist and is greatly used of God. He's a very good friend of mine. I remember Frank as simply being one who was always ready to serve. Even on this recent trip, I mean, got to introduce Jezreel to him. We spent a little bit of time together. It, you know, I mean, he's very, very well known. He's a very successful pastor. But the whole time we were with him, it was all about what? Just serving us. What can, we, what can I do to serve you? I thought, what an example 
of how that if we'll do our part, we just, we just worry about serving, God will take care of the rest. Amen? In order to be great, we have to serve. That's a paradox. Let's look at another one. Number two, well, this will strike at the heart, won't it? We must die to live. Now, this message will, can be communicated to anybody, and there are a lot of people that need to hear it couple of scriptures just to ground us matthew 10 39 jesus said whoever finds their life will lose it whoever loses their life for my sake will find it and what jesus is saying is if you run after trying to hold on to your life and finding life and making it happen figuring out if you do that it'll end up what losing it but whoever will just lose their life die with me, identify with my death. If they will lose their life for my sake, they will what? They will find it. Paul picks up on the same theme in Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, and he confesses this. I have been crucified with Christ. He's looking back a few years back. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, I am fully identified with that. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's what we celebrated yesterday at the water baptism at the beach. We were recognizing that we had died with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised again with Christ. John 12 says it well. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat, or one translation says a kernel of corn, will fall into the ground and dies. But if it dies, it will produce more grain. If you want corn, that kernel of corn's got to die first. It's got to die and be planted. And then, and only then, will life come out of that. Isn't it interesting how death must be precede life? We, to live spiritual lives... We're not talking about physical life here. We're talking about spiritual life and eternal life. If you really want to live, you have to learn what it means to die with Christ. The old man dead and a new man is able to live. This is a vital principle and a paradox that all of us must grasp, understand, and walk out. Most people are all about preserving their life, not losing it for Jesus. If we're all about grabbing, controlling, mastering ourselves, that's all self-driven. The spiritual route is be willing for your life, just like a kernel of corn, has to die, fall into the ground. You want to be productive in life. Not only if you want to live eternally, but if you want to be productive and make, ha have a productive, effective, fruitful life, death precedes life we must die to live can i share one more with you before we break up this morning and dismiss number three we must give to receive see these are principles that don't make sense up here the law of economics biblical economics defies the natural laws that we, that we learn in school. I don't know whether it was original, but 
Pat Robertson became known for referring to this principle as the law of reciprocity. And it is a law. It is just as important as saying it's a, it's, it's a spiritual law, and it means it works every time. Something you can count on. It's simply there, just like the law of gravity. You can't mess with the law of gravity. It's there. There's a law called the law of reciprocity, which simply means this. You give, and God will always outgive you. It is beyond your ability to outgive God. In order for me to receive, and I know a lot of people want to receive. Their focus is so much on the receiving, they forget the nature of giving. But if you really want to learn to receive and be blessed, whether it's financially, whether it's uh, spiritually in every way, this isn't just about money. If you want to be a receiver, you better learn to be a giver. The scripture makes it very clear. Luke 6, 38, these are words of Jesus. So don't argue with me, it's him. This is what he said. Give, and it will be given to you. But notice how it's given to you. We give, and then watch what he says. It's given back to you how? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. Listen to this principle. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There is a proportion, a, a direct relationship between the measure that you give and the measure that you receive, and it's multiplied in it coming back to you. Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this, he said, whoever sows, if you just throw a little bit out, sparingly, you're going to also what? reap sparingly if you want a small crop what do you do just plant a few seeds but if you want a really big crop what do you do more seed how many of you know that there's a relationship between sowing and reaping there is a direct relationship isn't there he says paul says so whoever sows sparingly you're just going to reap sparingly whoever sows generously will also reap generously Oral Roberts, many, many years ago, wrote a very well-known book, still actually quite popular in some circles today. He wrote a book called The Miracle of Seed Faith. And in that book, he basically explained this principle, this law. Someone says, Bobby, you just don't understand. I have so many financial needs. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't afford to give. I can't afford to do this, 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 this. Because you just don't understand. Let me explain to you something from the matter of principle. Just principle, just principle. You can't afford not to learn to give. You can live better and will live better on returning 10% to God and figuring out how to live on 90% than you can learn to live on a hundred does that make sense to the natural mind no it doesn't make sense at all why that's why it's a paradox it's a principle the law the law of economics biblical economics is 100 minus 10 equals 120 or 150 or 200 and every math teacher will mark that wrong on your exam if you put it there 
Because it's a spiritual, it's a biblical principle. God has created us to be givers. I'll give you one illustration in close. Um, exactly a year ago, we launched a, a, a war chest, building a war chest. We were on the last section that we had signed the papers to lease this particular facility that we're enjoying this morning. And uh, we've been saving money for two years to be able to to be able to lease a facility, and we knew it was going to cost a lot of money to do the build-out and buy the furnishings and buy equipment and all that stuff. So we've been building money, but we recognized we were probably a little short, and so we had a campaign, a special giving campaign, and we set a goal. We thought for the number of people we had, it was, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit out there, but we knew we had the need. I guess at the time we were averaging 60, 65 people maybe in our Saturday night service. And so we set a goal of $50,000 to raise between then and the end of the year that we'd have $50,000 or commitments uh, that matched that the previous for the following year. We challenged our people. We did all different kinds of things in order to emphasize it and, and challenge people to pray, listen to God, and challenge people to give. Give more than what you've been giving. This is, this is for this purpose. It was designated to finish out this building. I remember sitting down with the owners of this building at some particular point when we were in the build-out stage, and they said, we're just a little concerned because of all the extras you have requested beyond the original vanilla shell, what they call it, the vanilla shell. I said, well, we're not really interested in a vanilla shell. They said, well, who's going to pay for the extra? Because it's going to cost a whole lot more. I said, well, I said, I assumed that we would. So the owner looked at me with these eyes of basically what he was saying. He never said these words, but really what he was saying is, I know you folk can't afford what you're asking for. So I'll tell you what, I've talked to my partners. We're willing to finance your extras that you need in the building, and we're estimating it's going to be $65,000, $75,000. He didn't say we know you don't have it, but that, that, was the, that was the unspoken inference. So I remember this was a real kind of a tense meeting. I could tell he was, ha he was having trouble saying this. So I sat there, the people that were with me representing the church. and So we finally got through listening to his little spiel, and I said, how about we do this? Now, this was in October. We finished uh, the build-out in December, end of December. I said, how about we do this? How about whenever we're done, we're finished with the project, you build it to our specs, and whatever is over the cost that you've agreed to for your build-out, we'll just write you a check. <laughs> he looked at me with this strange look, and he went, oh, well, that, that would be fine. That would be fine. So I remember leaving that meeting, and that was a faith statement. Okay, Because I knew about what it was going to cost. I knew what we had received up to that point. So during that week, I began to pray and really say, God, yeah, all right, you know, your reputation's on the line now, Lord. <laughs> Do you know what I did? I wrote a check for $5,000. Now, we were way short of what we were needing. And I said, I'm, I said, I know that this is going to take a, a miracle. So I wrote a check for $5,000 from our church building fund account. 
and sent it to another church that I knew in our area that was raising money for a building project. And the reason I did that had nothing to do with the fact it was affordable. Had nothing to do with the fact that there was extra money. We're just giving it. We're just being good. It had all to do with the fact that I knew we needed to sow so that we could receive. I didn't publicize it. I hadn't told anybody other than a few insiders until right now. We sent that check. Of course, that pastor called me up and said, what? I said, brother, all I ask is you pray for us because we're going, we got a bill to pay in January. We sent that $5,000 and I want you to know not only did the 50000 which was the goal, come in, not only did the 75000 to pay, we stroked a check and never actually felt the pain of it at all because this principle was working. It works for a group. It works for a business. It works for you personally. I know it doesn't make natural sense, but it makes all the spiritual sense in the world. If you want to be a receiver, you need to learn to be a giver. Hallelujah. Let's pray today. (laughs) There are a lot of people who donated their time. Thank you, Stuart. Can we stand and pray together? Hallelujah. Paradoxes. They make you go, hmm, but they're truth. The key is what? Learning the the balance. The key is to walk in the balance of the paradoxes. Bow your heads. Father, we're thankful today that your word is always true. We're thankful that you Help us to walk in the depths of understanding of truth and Scripture. Father, we thank you that uh, even for these truths that we've been learning today and that we'll learn next Sunday and learn there's so many things that we just need to press into, our understanding and our application. Lord, we are grateful today that you've blessed us with life, life eternal, You've blessed us today with the Word of God that makes all the difference. We're thankful for that. Even today as our prayer workers come to the front of the building. If you're here today and, you know, what we talked about this morning, you can't live until you die. If you've never made the decision to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, That's the step you need to take today. You need to choose to lay your life down so you may receive new life through Jesus. You can do that today. And I'm simply going to ask that as I close our prayer time, that you simply come up to one of these prayer workers and let these teams pray for you. If you have any other needs maybe that haven't been addressed today, you just want someone to agree with you for something personal, please come. These couples are well able, trained to minister to you and to your time of need today. Lord, we bless each and every person today as they leave. We bless their spiritual lives, their marriages, their families. We bless their finances. We bless every aspect of life. Lord, use us this week to expand and extend the kingdom of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Just as the instruments play softly, uh, You're dismissed. Thank you.